1: Hello everyone, this is your host Gary. Today's episode comes with a disclaimer. The material that we are talking about is not suitable for young children as it deals with the topic of sexual violence in the ancient world. While this topic may be disturbing for some, I think it is one that must be explored. And I think that this particular episode is without doubt the best episode of the French History podcast yet and probably will remain so for quite some time because the subject matter is so incredibly important and I was utterly thrilled to sit down and talk with an expert on this issue which is not only important in and of itself but has recently caused a firestorm of controversy within the ancient historical profession. So, if you can stomach a more gruesome part of history, I think this is a must-listen-to episode. We left off in our last episode with the commencement of the Gaelic Wars by Gaius Julius Caesar. These wars saw the conquest of Gaul by the Romans. The Romans brought to Gaul their political structure Economic apparatus, and language, but additionally, they brought with them a hypermasculine culture that glorified sexual violence against women, and it is this culture, which ancient historian Dara von Orr describes as a Roman rape culture, that we are discussing. Dara von Orr is a PhD candidate at the University of Houston, studying women, gender, and sexuality of the early Roman Empire. Her dissertation in progress. Rape and Imperialism, Rome's Violent Conquest of Land and Bodies, seeks to explain how the Romans associated sexual violence with warfare. She recently gave a talk for the University of Houston's Ancient World Research Group titled Myths, Memes, and Hashtag Me Too where she discussed some of the theoretical background of her dissertation project, explaining how Roman myths and history can be analyzed by using the ideas from the Me Too movement. Before we jump into the interview, I want to give a bit of background on the topic itself because this is a highly controversial topic that has inflamed classical studies. This debate gained worldwide prominence in 2015 when the Columbia Spectator published the article our Identities Matter in Core Classrooms, which called for a reevaluation of Greco Roman myths and literature that more adequately addressed the rampant misogyny and sexual violence within them. This article was widely criticized from the left and right, from Breitbart.com to Stephen Fry, as they claimed that overly sensitive college students were trying to rewrite history and the canon of Western literature and make them politically correct. Despite the fact that the article never called for rewriting these works and just called for a new interpretation of them, those feminist historians who sided with the Columbia Spectator were lambasted and some even received death threats. The debate died down until 2017 when the hashtag MeToo movement exploded across the world. In the wake of a global awakening towards rampant sexual violence, Feminist historians have reawakened this debate, arguing that Greco-Roman myths not receive a free pass from criticism that they have had for so long. This is without a doubt the most controversial episode of this podcast so far, and will be for quite a while. I imagine that many people will disagree with the conclusions that Ms. Von Orr and I come to, however, regardless of whether or not you agree with us, we believe that this debate is absolutely essential to have. There is nothing wrong with bringing a new perspective to the table. The way the historical process works is that new perspectives emerge and challenge the old, and either the old are swept away by superior arguments, or the new die off due to their inferiority. New perspectives on old sources is what makes history. For nearly 2,000 years, women have been left out of the conversation regarding Greco-Roman culture and mythology. Over the past 70 years, women have been able to enter into academia with some notable size, and they have been able to engage with the historical debate, causing quite a few people to feel threatened by the critiques they are presenting to long-established historical canon. My hope is that you will listen to the following conversation and be entertained, and perhaps even enlightened, to the issues feminist historians are grappling with. Whether or not you agree with us is irrelevant. Rather, the only thing that matters is that we can have a civil conversation even about topics that are unsavory and, by their nature, uncivil. With that in mind, let's jump into today's episode, Hashtag #MeToo and Roman rape culture. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, joining me, Dara.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, it's... uh you know, I always enjoy talking to you, although the uh, subject matter that we're going to be talking about now, it's, uh, it's quite a bit heavier than our usual talk about uh, fire Festival or RuneScape or other just uh, nothings. Because uh, you know me, like I'm the type of person who, when I'm outside of the classroom, I kind of don't like to talk about history. Like oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I try to have a life outside of history because so many of our, um, when you're in academia, when you're in the ivory tower as we are looking out like Rapunzel trying to escape, at least that's me, everyone else just talks, they go out to bars and yet they talk about their students and how they don't know about who Ida B. Wells is, or uh, that sort of thing, or they talk about 1960s race relations, and you and me, we're just not on that wavelength.
0: Yeah, I definitely like to stay well-grounded and away from my studies whenever I possibly can.
1: I think the only thing that I've seen of you... that actually relates to history outside of the classroom is, didn't you go to like a toga party or something to get free salad that one time?
0: Yeah, it's probably one of my favorite college memories so far is having a free Caesar salad contest because I wore a toga. Um, I'm also a super fan of Caesar salads in general, so I don't know if that's related to history or just a, a personal preference.
1: I've never heard of someone who was a fan of Caesar salads.
0: I'm, I'm very picky about them, too. They, really? they can't be crazy or with, you know, weird carrots or weird stuff in it. It has to be the five main ingredients <laughs> of a Caesar salad.
1: Okay, see, that's that's too dorky even for <laughs> me. Like, I thought we had connected at one point because um, during this one uh, professional historian class, we, uh, we talked about what got us into history and... For you and for me, it mm-hmm. was uh, the myths. that I've said it long before that uh, myths are sort of the gateway drug to history. I'm copywriting that saying. But uh, being a fan of Caesar salads. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know,
0: it's, it's funny. I never actually <laughs> considered my, being a fan of mythology from a young age, I never connected that with what I'm doing now until you said that in the class.
1: Oh, really? Yeah.
0: So uh, it's something that I was interested in for a long time. But then whenever I got into history in college, I there's sort of a disconnect in between the time period that I like myths and the time period I've started studying history until now, bringing it all back together again.
1: Well, that's interesting. And I suppose that for you it's a very special thing because the way that I have connected my love of myths with history is that... It's more, how do I even put this? It's more thematic because I look at modern history, particularly within the last 150 years, an era where our problem is not that there isn't enough information, but that there's way too much and you have to make it relevant. And so this whole myth making, um, it, it's a very, it's thematic, but it's not so much factual. Whereas for you, it seems like because you classicists might have one piece of information from which you have to create this whole world or culture like, it seems like myth and history are, are very... I'm not going to say they're one and the same, but they're very oh, tied together. Oh, they are one and the same.
0: In, in some cases more than others, um, because the ancient historians are... The primary sources were actually their secondary sources, right? Right, yeah. So they're pulling together oral history and you know artwork and all of these things together to make this historical narrative, which we now look at and say, um right it probably didn't actually happen and whether or not i don't know if they believed their own myths that they told or if it was a part of just their their collective history was their mythology
1: right and that it gets even more problematic because so much of the supposedly factual information is so very unreliable like uh, i think my favorite is uh Herodotus said which I just mentioning Herodotus, I know for as a classicist you're pro, you're uh, smiling right now but the, when Herodotus said that um, the Leonidas and his his oiled up troop of warriors faced off against the Persian Empire that the Persians had five and a half million
0: right uh, or in
1: uh, five and a half million on army size but even if you include like camp followers and everything that's just that's that's wrong, isn't it Dara?
0: well a lot of these numbers okay Herodotus wasn't there you know sitting and counting the troops Mm -hmm. okay so and some of these numbers are actually taken from the Iliad and from oh really yeah from these other sources and they just keep the the number values like the number of ships is directly from the Homeric epics Um, but it's also it's it's serving a purpose of they have a really big army
1: Right, you know. exactly. So,
0: and so yeah, numbers, um, I think Dr. Holt actually has a line in one of his books saying, if you have a number that's very specific, then you can probably believe it. But if it's something that's really, or no, the other way around. Okay. <laughs> if you have a number that's very specific, like.
1: If it's a round number, it's like marketing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 10, uh, Ten easy steps to success, you know, yeah. like, like the the last three are just padding, you know, because you're not going to have, well, you might have seven, but having something like, okay, in any case, Never we're, mind. We're, we're, not, we're not into marketing, but um, I get, I get the point. Never I get, mind, yeah. okay. Okay, well, um, I'm glad we sort of laid this groundwork of this combination of myths as history, because I think the core of what I want to get at in this interview Is just the importance of the myths we're looking at to these cultures and um, because what we're going to look at is very heavy and I think that for me, looking back at a lot of these myths I couldn't help but think you almost look at these myths when you're first reading them as sort of more literary than historical or relevant and so when you hear about murders and and what we're going to be talking about, rape and incest and cannibalism and all these things, you don't look at them with the same sort of... uh, You don't look at them as if they're reality. I mean, one comparison I was thinking about when I was preparing for this interview was how we... When we... um, when we uh, watch a movie or something, we can watch a movie like Commando or the new... What's that new series with Keanu Reeves where he has the dog, the...
0: Oh, the John Wick. J- John Wick, Wick. Yeah. yeah.
1: Where he brutally murders hundreds of people and you don't look the other way. But meanwhile, every now and then, you'll, uh, I'll be on Reddit or something and I'll see a GIF of someone who's on a skateboard and wipes out and falls down the stairs and I'll cringe. There's this visceral reaction. And so there's this there's almost this this gap as our brain filters out reality and then what we know to be fake and what I think is interesting is that those of us in the modern era when we read these old greek mythology or other mythologies and we hear or we read about these truly horrendous things we look at them as more of literary devices whereas those people back then they might have actually believed it in reality and so therefore is more powerful to them and what we're going to get into um, particularly in relation to um, the article Our Identities Matter in Core Classrooms is that I think one of the major points that they were bringing up is the fact that, that these are not just literary devices and that this these, uh, these incidences actually had a very powerful impact on the greco-roman psyche um am i wrong
0: i think it goes both ways where it is just like our culture today and i want to make a lot of these comparisons not to say that you know the greco-roman world is the same as today but we can use a lot of the same ideas so we have what could be described as a rape culture in our current era right so um defined as a a widespread system of beliefs that socializes people to accept, justify, defend, deny the presence of rape or sexual assault. And so whenever you have that, you have people in charge of making media that perpetuates and is also an example of this culture. So in the ancient world, it's very similar, where you have these men who believe that rape is okay, perpetuating the myths that rape is okay, which people are reading and seeing that rape is okay.
1: So, so on that note, I, I kind of want to talk about the greater project that you're working on, because you have actually turned this into a dissertation, and uh, something which I very much look forward to reading once it's in paperback, but... The project that you're working on is about rethinking Greco-Roman history and mythology with a hashtag MeToo lens. Um, Can you give us an intro into how this all got started?
0: Yeah, so my project is, or the dissertation, is specifically looking at the early Roman Empire rape culture and how that's corresponding to the ideas of conquest and imperialism. So... War is rape, rape is war, that idea. And I have started from the beginning of college wanting to write about women's history, and this has turned into women and gender and sexuality history. And ancient history and the classics can sometimes be an echo chamber of the same ideas over and over. And because I have a background in in feminist theory, I'm able to bring in a new perspective to 3,000-year-old myths, using the hashtag MeToo movement as a framework to study this period.
1: So before I get back to the questions that I had prepared, I need to stop at this definition which you provided of rape culture. I think that's a good definition in general, but I have to ask... Is the rape culture that we have seen in maybe specific institutions which have recently come under fire, certain fraternal societies, is there a categorical difference that you see between modern institutions and then the Greco-Roman society?
0: I guess one of the biggest differences right now that we're seeing is that rape is actually a lot more out in the open than it was in the Greco-Roman periods. So, both that we are talking about it more because of the Me Too movement itself, but also because we have a, a specific name for these things. Right. So there wasn't really a name for this is rape in this way this is sexual assault or this is sexual harassment or this is rape culture we have those that terminology now that we can use whereas before it was this woman was abducted this woman was snatched away
1: yeah do you want to explain the difference um in in the greek and the latin uh their the word that they used
0: so, the Romans had the word raptus, and it's pretty easy to see how we get the word rape from that, or rapture as well. Ooh. So, it's right capturing, grabbing, snatching, taking, um, but in a lot of these contexts, it's capturing a woman and then she's pregnant, right? Oh. So, there's the, the underlying assumption that this can be conflated with the actual act of sexual assault and so the title of one of the myths that we'll be looking at it's rape of the sabine women right. and this is a, a canonized title so everybody has used this title but very often even on the wikipedia page right now it says oh well r- rape in this case just means the abduction and okay right <laughs> but it, it, there's also rape there um, in the greek the word is harpazo which is um very similar snatched grab is where we get the word harpy hmm. from um which interestingly they are traditionally agents of zeus harpies right, right. well so, i mean
1: <laughs> no surprise there and uh, i'm sure we're going to get into that um but in that case there's Again, when I look at this, there's so many myths to choose from, particularly towards the founding of Rome, which we'll get to um, in a moment, but you cornered in on three specific myths and how they relate to modern points of debate over uh, sexual identity. Do you want to uh, introduce those three ones that you brought up in your most recent talk?
0: The three myths that I looked at were Helen of Troy, when considering consent, Callisto as told by Ovid's Metamorphoses whenever we're thinking about rape culture and finally the rape of the Sabine women when we're thinking about toxic masculinity. Do you want me to? Yeah,
1: let's um let's break those down then.
0: Helen of Troy is one of the most popular women in historical fiction, and she comes up a lot in movies and TV shows. There's a recent Netflix series about Troy where she's there, and most of the modern media is portraying Helen as having a reluctant consensual affair with Paris or slash Alexander, depending on your translation. In the myths themselves the affair or the relationship between Helen and Paris is very ambiguous there's not a lot of information on it and there's lots of different sources giving conflicting information about their relationship but if we look at book 3 in the Iliad so this is the fight between Menelaus and Paris or fighting over Helen Helen is has already been abducted at this point, but she's basically done with this whole thing. She doesn't want to be a part of it, whether she was at the beginning or not. But book three makes it clear that she doesn't want to be with Paris anymore. But Aphrodite is intimidating her into going to bed with Paris to the point of saying she's going to bring her divine wrath against her if she doesn't. Um, and I believe that this is... The Aphrodite is a stand-in for a male aggressive desire and a reflection of the non-consensual nature of their relationship. The Trojan War supposedly started with the judgment of Paris. This is the competition between the three goddesses, Athena, Hera, and Aphrodite, and the, the golden apple. So Paris is asked by Hermes to judge who's the most beautiful out of the three goddesses, and each of the three offer him something in return for this apple. So Athena offers him wisdom, Hera offers him power, and Aphrodite offers him the most beautiful woman in the world. And so Paris chooses Aphrodite, and his prize is Helen. So from the beginning, even if we want to say, for example, Aphrodite convinced Helen to go with Paris or even if Paris convinced Helen to go with him these are still examples of a of a coercive or a coercive relationship that's not 100% consensual and what we know from the me too era if it's not 100% consensual it's not consensual
1: right let's unpack that just a little bit because Essentially, I think our conception of consent is so different from, uh, I mean, not even from thousands of years ago, but even from our last generation. 30 years ago. Right, yeah. yeah. So so what, what would you say is the differences between how the ancients viewed consent and then how we see it in the wake of the Me Too era? All
0: right, so even... We'll say from the ancients. I don't know if the ancients necessarily had a view of consent. Right, that's,
1: that's quite a th- the problem there. Yeah.
0: yeah, and there's a lot of philosophical arguments. I don't know if you want to get into this, right? So if, if women weren't legal bodies, could they actually consent? Was any Was any sexual affairs in the ancient world consensual?
1: Right. Too much, okay. (laughs) Yeah, and um, I think on that note, I I couldn't help but think because here's something where uh, actually our two professions overlap because uh, this concept of consent, this is really something I don't think people even realize how new it is. I think um, so much of the things that we take for granted as a moral standard within our society is actually something that is barely come about and so some of the examples that I would uh, bring up is that I don't know how many people know this but throughout most of history of western history the idea of sexual violence within a marriage, not being violent or not being considered uh, immoral, was uh, pretty much accepted up until about 70 years ago. In fact, Alaska became the last state in the United States of America to ban marital rape in the 1950s. And so... This is, uh, this idea that women can actually say no and that they don't owe sex to someone. Right, this is something that is, this is...
0: uh, I would argue that a lot more recent than that did marital rape become an idea, even though legally it was a thing. It's still, I, I think in a lot of people's minds, it's not really a thing.
1: Well, yeah, um, on that note, uh... I was going to also mention, so for those people who don't know who Phyllis Shafley is, uh, Phyllis Shafley was sort of the counter to the second wave feminist movement during the 1960s and 70s where you had a lot of women who were trying to bring up concepts of sexual violence and to change the narrative. Phyllis Shafley was arguing that the modern feminists were essentially degrading motherhood and degrading the traditional position of women. And Phyllis Schaefeli, when asked if there was such a thing as violence between the husband and wife, she said that there was no such thing as rape within a marriage, that essentially sex was something that women owed men. So this really, it's like you said, this is not something that is wholly... Uh, uh, ancient. It's it's not ancient. Yeah, this right. is something which has stayed with us to this day. So I think that's a good look at the differences of consent and how this is something that has constantly been evolving and how in mythology, at least uh, in this period, there really wasn't.
0: Families have a lot going on.
1: a clear idea of consent if there was one at all so you brought up the issue of consent uh, but then you had uh, let's move on to the next myth of uh, Callisto So what did you uh, draw from that
0: the Callisto has been presented in a lot of different, mythological work so Hesiod is where she first shows up but i'm going to talk about specifically in Ovid's Metamorphoses which is one of the the more recent versions and it's definitely the longest version so Callisto can serve as an example of rape culture rape culture works by putting the blame on the perpetrator and away from the victim so the story of Callisto shows this in the following way Callisto is a virgin nymph follower of Diana, who is the Roman version of Artemis. And Zeus, or in this case Jupiter, wants to get to her. Right, so wants to to capture her, right. abduct her.
1: Yes, yeah, whatever right? word they were using. Yes.
0: <laughs> so he sees her, and he disguises himself as Diana to get to her. So he's able to get close to her, and talk to her and distract her, and then eventually it's described as him grabbing her, and Ovid describes her fighting back. So he says if Juno, or Hera, would have seen her fighting back, she wouldn't be mad at her because of how hard she fought. But because it's Jupiter, she's not able to. So she becomes pregnant from the rape, and because of this, she's kicked out of Diana's entourage for violating her vows of chastity. And Juno attacks her out of jealousy and rage. So Ava describes Juno as pulling her to the ground by her hair. And then as she does this, Callisto turns into a bear. So she loses her voice. She loses her family. She loses her son, who doesn't recognize her as a bear. And then eventually her and her son are turned into the constellations Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. She's full of guilt she's full of shame and this shows how the blame of of rape of her assault is placed on her rather than on Zeus or Jupiter. Jupiter is able to get away into the sky and Callisto it's left there voiceless and without her family
1: right this is the sort of thing that i think we would regularly look at if we were looking at it through a purely modern lens if someone had written this as a, a fiction and this is a clear example of here the woman is being shamed because she was the victim rather than the man being shamed and so i I think that's that's quite a, a good example. So before we try to tie this in uh, tie this in but also justify that because uh I think that even bringing this up as we have seen is quite controversial. There's one more myth that uh you looked at. This one uh being the rape of the Sabine women. You want to uh jump into that.
0: Right. So the founding or the creation of the city of Rome is described as being through this this myth, the rape of the Sabine women. Romulus, one of the, the mythical founders, the king, the first king of Rome, he creates a sanctuary to start his city in Lousin. A bunch of men, no matter if they were... Slaves before criminals, doesn't matter. Forgiveness, amnesty, come to my town, so let's grow it. But it's just men. So in order to grow the city beyond a single generation, they need to get wives. Their first idea is to go around to the different neighboring cities and ask for political alliances, and all of them refuse to, to help them out. So finally, Romulus decides to throw a religious festival and give a signal. And at that time, all of the Roman men abduct the other city's young women and carry them off. Eventually, Romulus tells them that they're going to be the mother of the Ro- mothers of the Roman race. They're going to be a part of the ownership of the splendors of Rome. And they the women accept that. So, even if we don't call this a rape, right. we can call this an abduction and kidnapping and forced marriage, which sounds great as well.
1: It's a bit rapey.
0: It's yeah. A, yeah, it's a lot rapey, yeah.
1: Yeah, and at the end of the myth, the Sabine women essentially accept yes. that this is legitimate.
0: Yes. So, there's a big fight between the the Sabine families, right, the mothers and fathers whose daughters were captured and taken away, and the Romans and the Sabine women stand in between the two and say, we don't want to lose our fathers, we don't want to lose our husbands, we don't want to leave our children orphaned, so stop fighting. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. They agree with the women.
1: Right, and essentially the moral of this story is that a woman to a large extent has to know her place wouldn't you say or uh, essentially i mean maybe i'm misreading this but it seems like the moral is that uh there's a certain uh that the priority is the society itself that Definitely. in this case it yeah. is rome yeah rather than yeah loyalty any
0: individual. loyalty to rome is the number one priority yeah, for Romans.
1: Right, and in this case, even if a woman is abducted, even if she is sexually violated, that she should still give due obedience to, to Rome. Rome. Yeah. So at this point, now that we've sort of laid these on the table, we have Helen of Troy, uh, Callisto, we have uh, the rape of the Sabine women, I think now would be a good point to actually talk about why it is that it is important to re-examine these uh, and to look at them through a modern feminist lens. Because I have a feeling that this is, by leaps and bounds, going to be the most controversial episode so far that we've had. And uh, I don't know, have you faced any controversy or had people saying that you're uh, white knighting it uh, as of yet? Or...
0: No, I haven't had, I haven't really actually been out there that much to get the backlash, but it is, it's scary to be a part of this conversation.
1: Right, because, I mean, even if you haven't gotten out there personally, there have been quite a few uh, people who have been arguing this that have been blasted uh, by a lot of different sources, left and right.
0: Right, the the mythology, the Greco Roman culture has gotten a free pass based on the virtue of it being Greco Roman culture. Right. And in addition, it's seen as a a golden era in some ways, especially right. the the Roman Empire, Augustus' era.
1: It's beyond reproach.
0: Definitely has been the, the attitude so far.
1: But I think it is, uh, I think you're doing a a great work uh, by re examining this because after looking over just all of these myths, what strikes me is how pivotal rape itself was to the Greco Roman religion, culture, and state identity. Um, And when I say rape, I'm not talking about abduction, but literally sexual violence itself. And I created a mini list here uh, to go over the rape myths involved in the creation of Rome. The first one is uh, the rape of Europa by Zeus, which leads to the birth of Europe, so the founding myth of Europe as a civilization. Next, we have the abduction let's call it of uh, Helen of Troy which leads to the Trojan War which causes Aeneas to flee and he becomes the ancestor of Romulus and Remus who later found Rome. Uh, Next we have Rhea the mortal woman not to be confused with the Titan who is uh, raped by Mars and gives birth to Romulus and Remus uh, who found the city of Rome. There is then the rape of the Sabine women, which allows Rome to survive as a city, and also metaphorically acts, in my opinion, as a justification for Roman expansion. And then finally, there's the rape of Lucretia, which causes the Romans to rebel against the Etruscan monarch and found a republic because they're so disgusted that a Roman woman uh, could be raped by this uh, corrupt king. So basically, every major foundation myth connected to Rome and its development as a society was based on rape, to the point where I think it is just insane to deny uh, that rape was an integral part to the Roman identity, Um, to the point where... Literally, there are coins commemorating and glorifying the rape of the Sabine women. I mean, this was something that was clearly part of the Roman consciousness. So, why do you think it is that rape infused nearly every founding myth and proved to be so central to Roman culture and religion?
0: Part of the answer is that rape is a really convenient plot device, just as it is in today's media, and these myths were, just like today's media, the foundation of culture, things that Greeks and Romans read and reenacted for enjoyment. Um, There are also political motives, so a lot of Roman senators or Caesar, for example, trace their lineage back to a divine parentage. And whether it was consensual or not to begin with isn't, wasn't really that important to them. But if we think about it in terms of today, rape culture demands strict gender roles. Okay? It can lead to toxic masculinity and the idealization of passive femininity. So women are sexually available and submissive. In both Greek and Roman culture sole political and economic power was in the hands of the men and ideally in Athens women wouldn't even have been seen at all they would stay in their house and not talk and not be named not be a part of civic life or family life some Roman women did gain political power so one of my favorite examples is Agrippina the Younger and she was the mother of Nero and in her own time she was slandered and this myth still persists today as agrippina had an incestuous relationship with her own son nero and
1: right and every time uh, a roman emperor dies mysteriously it's, it's always the, the fault of fault. the woman that's yeah. right
0: so this is a culture that routinely demonizes women's sexuality and identities And there's a a theory that rape functions as a form of oppression against women, so keeping women in their place by the use of fear of rape. Um, And so can you imagine a better tool to keep women in their place than having the very foundation of your society based on sexual violence against women?
1: right and this is something and I'll give this as the last justification because in my mind I don't think we need to justify why we're speaking about this but given just how heated this topic is um, I think that it's worth noting here that you cannot talk about Roman culture Roman identity and Roman belief without talking about rape so maybe uh, for those of us who are listening to this Maybe you don't necessarily agree with some of the conclusions we're coming to but it absolutely has to be talked about. I mean after looking over this and realizing that every single story about what it means to be Roman and how Rome came about and every one was based on a rape, whether or not you you interpret things the same way that Dara and I do, at least this is something that has to be talked about, and to a large extent, it really isn't. the The Greco Romans are given quite a pass.
0: Yeah, I, I have a comparison. I'm not sure if it's a great comparison, but it's would be as if an antebellum historian said, "Yep, there is slavery. Let's talk about something else."
1: Yeah, although that's uh, that is sort of something that is kind of done nowadays, where slavery is pushed aside and people talk about states' rights, even though I believe it was the vice president who specifically gave a speech when the South seceded and said that the basis of the Confederacy is on the idea that the white man and the Negro are not equal, and yet today we still have a lot of people who say, oh, well, it wasn't about Slavery, it was states' rights.
0: Really, I don't want to get into that.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, well, well, we're not going to get into that because, you know, this episode's going to be controversial enough talking about rape, so we're not going to also bring up uh, race politics that I know of.
0: Rape in Antiquity has not necessarily been ignored completely. There have been a couple of volumes in the 90s. Amy Richelin is a huge scholar on sexual aggression in Rome. But prior to women being a part of academia, which whenever you think about the scope of Roman history, or the study of Roman history, this is a huge chunk of time of only men creating the knowledge about Roman history. And there were there's a lot of interest in political developments, economics of the Roman Empire, why Was there a transition from the Republic to the Empire? Who was Augustus? What do we know about Augustus? How great was Augustus? And so there was less of an interest in gender politics or social life in Rome at all. And also there wasn't the language that we have now to talk about the rape culture, the toxic masculinity in Rome, if you want to call it that. So... I think by bringing in some of the theory that hasn't been used towards Roman history, we can start to add on more layers of what we know about it rather than trying to... I'm not trying to say that Rome is bad,
1: right? Yeah. but
0: just trying to understand more about Roman society than what we already know.
1: But unfortunately, I have a feeling that even though we're not saying that at all... There are going to be people, without even listening to the episode, who are going to say, oh, these SJWs bashing Rome. But on that note, um, I want to switch a little bit from talking about the actual history itself to the historiography, and I think uh, you did a great transition there, because... As historians, we constantly have to deal with the problem of interpreting the past and whether we should interpret it using our values or consider the values of the time. Um, As a woman and a feminist historian writing about Greco-Roman history and myths, which were written by men, how do you deal with perceived criticism of this method of speaking about them?
0: On the one hand, I think that's how the discipline of history works. We have to find a new way to look at these 3,000-year-old sources, 2,000-year-old sources, and to challenge the current narrative. It's necessary to bring new theories and new ideas into the study. But in addition, you have to stay close to the primary sources, and if you have weak ties to the primary sources you leave yourself open to criticism of that sort you know identity politics you're a woman so you're only thinking about women i don't i don't know what the critique is on that. well
1: you know what <laughs> people will make a critique like that
0: right you know? so you know you're bringing too much identity politics into roman history that shouldn't belong there but I love that history is a dialogue and somebody can look at the same sources that I'm looking at and they can critique my interpretations as long as they're sticking close to the sources as well. Right. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, and I wanted to talk about the specific way in which you are trying to change the field because you referred to Greco-Roman culture, or at least one facet of it, as rape culture, which is enormously provocative and controversial, but you think that that fits.
0: Yeah, it's very scary (laughs) to use words like that when it comes to Roman history because of the potential pushback, but it's terminology and it's a convenient way of phrasing everything that I want to phrase in two words rather than using full sentences every single time I want to describe it. But it doesn't necessarily have a judgment towards Roman history attached to it, even though I would attach a judgment to it. But it's, it's terminology, it's theory, and it's, it's useful, and so I'm going to use it.
1: So do you think that the Me Too era has changed the historiography of your field, or do you think that it's too new to see the effects that it's had?
0: In studying rape theory, I've definitely noticed a lag in the the theory, the theoretical works, and in what's happening right now. So the Me Too movement is happening so rapidly that the historiography essentially can't keep up. And so what I think we're going to see in about three or four years is a huge proliferation of works about what we've learned from the Me Too era. However, I don't necessarily think that there's going to be a lot more in ancient history about rape culture in Rome. So hopefully my work can add to the historiography and start changing the direction of Roman history to start looking at more gender dynamics and how how they work.
1: Um, So one final question then about the historiography before we get to the really fun stuff, uh, which is... In my field of modern history, women had a voice, they ran journals, sometimes they could vote uh, and otherwise argue for themselves. But in your case, women are largely absent from the narrative, and so historians have to read male-centric and male-written text to tease out the history. Uh, How do you uncover women's voices using male text, particularly in such a virulently misogynistic society?
0: So the historian Amy Richland, who I brought up earlier, she calls it arguing with silence. We're trying to wrestle information from the gaps and the omissions. But women are there in the sources. It's just that men created these ideas of women. We don't have representation of what women wrote, but we have male perspectives of women. So I think that my project is actually easier to write than trying to write a, a women's history of Rome. Hmm. Because we have male ideas. So if we can analyze the male ideas, that's actually not that difficult of a project. It's way more difficult to figure out who was Agrippina because it's all male ideas of who Agrippina is. In some ways, it's unfortunate because I'm still looking at men. Right. And, but who wants
1: I'm, to look at men?
0: So men keep the central role right? But I'm still trying to uncover the voices of the voiceless through this. So my project is a female perspective on the male perspective of
1: females. Whoa, she just pulled an inception there. But uh, on that note, wow, what another great transition. So we're going to move on a little bit because one thing that I wanted to talk about is pop culture and how they cover these historical periods. Uh, I think you and I are uniquely qualified to do this since we're both video game and movie junkies. Um, One thing that I found out is that nowadays many, if not the majority, of movies, TV shows, or books dealing with the ancient world all the way up to the medieval period have at least one rape scene. There's uh, the scene in Game of Thrones with Cersei and Jaime Lannister. There's quite a few in one of my favorite literary series, The Prince of Nothing. There's in the movie 300. I don't know how you read it, but as a cinephile, I get the sense that it's a way of authenticating the work. That, on the one hand, by having a rape scene in a historical show, it shows that the show deals with serious topics and is therefore mature, but also it casts itself as historically accurate because it demonstrates that this was a misogynistic time. So what do you think about this paradigm in popular culture? I think we can criticize this as being dramatic, but are they really wrong to think that a show about pre-modern times must have a rape scene to be authentic?
0: The question is interesting because I think when we look at it in that way, we see that people really do understand that Rome did have a lot of rape in it. Right. And so it shows an understanding, if you want to call it that, of how bad the ancient world was in that respect. But in my opinion, I, I don't think it's a way to authenticate the historical fiction. I think it's a way to display rape on the screen and not have to answer the hard questions about it. Right. And whenever there's a pushback, they can say, Rome, they had rape.
1: Right. rather we're, than we're just actually just doing what they had. Yeah.
0: Rather than just actually answering the questions about why are you showing this? What purpose does it serve, right? Is it actually dealing with rape? Is it dealing with the aftermath and the intense violation of body and identity of a woman? Or is it trying to provide shock value or have a spectacle for a male audience to see? Nine times out of ten or maybe ten maybe times more. maybe ten times out of ten rape on the screen is done in a very disturbing way.
1: Yeah. I mean, aside from just the fact that itself is disturbing, but the way that it's handled. I mean, exactly. Yeah. You know, that's that's really interesting. I hadn't considered that perspective before. It's amazing how If you say that Rome or in a medieval period had a rape culture, like just saying that will have some people get offended. But meanwhile, if you show a rape on the screen and say, oh, well, this was just the mid of the times, there's that connection for people. So I guess there's just this desire for people not to have feminist narratives to take over.
0: Yeah, it's... The want to acknowledge rape without having to engage with the realities of rape. Right. Or to show, you know, boobs and butts on the screen. Right. And at the same time, as we'll get to, perpetuate myths about rape in our own time. So, you know, asking for it or a woman must in some way have brought her own assault upon her. Those sorts of myths get... Perpetuated in on the screen in the media.
1: So, one strange thing about Hollywood is that people think it's so progressive when, in reality, it really isn't. Despite the fact that Green Book won the Best Picture uh, last night, so often the movies produced by major studios are horrendously backward. One strange thing about most of these films is that they depict rape much as the ancient Greco-Roman writers did. For example, in Game of Thrones, there's the infamous scene where Cersei Lannister is mourning her dead son Joffrey, rest in peace, and her brother Jaime enters and he wants to have sex. She refuses, but then he forces himself on her and she accepts and then supposedly enjoys it. There are quite a few books and films that I've seen where this same topos takes place, where a woman starts out resisting, only for it to turn into consent midway through. Uh, Do you think there is a reason that this narrative remains?
0: What's really telling about the episode of Game of Thrones that you mentioned is that the director, Alex Graves, defends his decision for this scene, claims that it's consensual by the end, because somehow consent can magically appear at the end of a rape.
1: Or consent is something which you can get at the end rather than what starts the sexual encounter.
0: Right. So it seems that these directors are both a reflection of and a perpetuator of this rape culture. And the idea that a survivor of an assault eventually enjoys it is a really, really horrible thing to perpetuate. So to have the idea of your body reacted or you, your body felt pleasure from it, so that means you actually consented, that's a horrible, horrible thing to be perpetuating in these movies and TV shows.
1: And what's interesting, I think, is that this uh, topos isn't just something that is in... Uh, let's say raunchier films and television which are often aimed at male audiences but this is something which is quite often aimed at female audiences as well even uh, young girls so uh, case in point, specifically mentioning Twilight, uh, Stephanie Myers the host and then Fifty Shades of Grey which is aimed at uh, women case in point, Fifty Shades of Grey where Christian Grey stalks, harasses, and threatens Anastasia Steele until she is coerced into sex. Metaphorically, the same thing happens in Twilight and in Stephanie Myers The Host, where in both books and films there's an instance where a girl doesn't want to be in a relationship with someone or kiss a boy, but then the boy forces her into it and she accepts his advances because he's hot and rich. So in that sense, do you think that we have moved beyond this ancient Greco-Roman narrative, or are we still just echoing this same idea that as long as the guy is hot, rich, or serving the glory of Rome, that therefore it's okay?
0: It's, it's interesting that these works that you bring up are by women and for women, and I think on the one hand it shows mm-hmm. this internalized rape culture, That, again, like Alex Graves, I don't think that they realize what they're creating counts as rape or coerced or assault or not fully consensual, which anything other than fully consensual is not consensual. I think it becomes a way to project female agency and sexuality in a way that's maybe misplaced. But still an attempt to do so. So Anastasia or Bella, they choose these men with dark sides. And it's a super common topos in supernatural romance stories. And even if we look at the myth of Persephone and Hades, some bad boy. Sometimes that story becomes sexualized, and a lot of times it becomes fetishized, right? of this idea of of a bad boy. And these are, those two that you mentioned are actually before the Me Too comes to full fruition, and now we're calling them out, because we can, and we have that knowledge that this is not really okay. Um, But I don't think the answer is to shame these women authors, because... They're trying to encapsulate this idea of female sexuality. And and women can have whatever sexual desires that they want to. Um, But we do need to be perpetuating what a healthy relationship looks like in novels. But maybe that doesn't have the same shelf appeal.
1: Right, yes. Well, I want to make it very clear now that we at the French History Podcast do not kink shame people. We just want you to understand... Whether or not your kinks are culturally acceptable. so one uh, so one last question on pop culture is that if Dara ran Hollywood, how would you deal with issues of rape in in historical fiction?
0: There's no tasteful way to make a rape scene,
1: hmm.
0: right? But I think, if directors want to explore ancient misogyny or ancient rape culture or violence against women, sexual assault in the ancient world, women need to be the protagonists. They need to be the main characters in the story. So make it their story and their reactions and their voices. So rape scenes shouldn't be an afterthought. You know what this movie could really use? Right. A rape. You know, and it shouldn't be used as shock value. But if it has to be used if the director really, really needs it at the movie. It has to be an exploration of attitudes and the way that it affects women deeply to their identity and their sense of self and don't show them enjoying it.
1: So now we're getting to the end of this podcast. So in closing, um, this podcast has an audience of both scholars and laypeople. What takeaway do you think scholars should take from your work and this greater examination of rape culture in the ancient world?
0: The Me Too movement is a framework. It's a way that we can understand the past and it's a starting point to look at gender relationships of the past. And it might not work in every instance. It's a way to begin looking at sexual assault and rape in the past.
1: So What do you think lay audiences should take away from this? Because from my understanding, lay audiences have a vague awareness that women were treated much worse the farther back you go in history. Yet at the same time, there's this other idea that, well, that's just how things were. Um, Can you address that? And is there a problem with having this mentality?
0: So the main takeaway, I would say, is to question and criticize the ancient world and what you see in the media about the ancient world and honestly question and criticize the world today. In addition to being a theoretical framework, the Me Too movement is an, is an assertion that the voices of women and all survivors matter. And just saying, oh, that's how things were, it's dismissive. It's dismissive of good historical thought. And it's also dismissive of the women who were and are abused. It allows Zeus's and Weinstein's to remain innocent and allows Callisto's to stay silent.
1: I think the the point that you bring up to criticize everything is something that is really at the heart of this entire conversation because on the one hand, there is quite a bit of pushback against even the notion of critiquing the greco-roman world and that we should just uh, accept anything that we have a personal discomfiture with as being a product of the time or as being a literary device when nothing is beyond criticism and so whether or not we adjust our value judgments to accommodate a separate time the fact is is that Even ancient sources from thousands of years ago are not, they should not be impervious to value judgments.
0: And I think whenever we say criticize, what we're meaning is really analyze, right? So not necessarily saying, again, not saying Rome bad. Right. But saying that we need to take a a different look, a different perspective on these sources. And... We can learn a lot about the past by using present ideas.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dara, for engaging in this conversation. This has been absolutely fantastic, truly enlightening, and it's uh, always great talking to you.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Au revoir.
1: As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to visit our page and either make a one-time donation or become a Patreon, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for listening.